you're listening to Root Cause Remedies, a show that explores environmental justice from right here in Hawaii. I'm Tina Grandinetti, and I'll be your humble host and fellow traveler on this Huaka'i to learn more about the issues that affect the lands, waters, and people that sustain us. If you've been following along with the local news, you know that yesterday, October 15th, the state launched a pre-travel testing program that allows tourists to bypass the 14-day quarantine requirement by showing a negative result from a COVID-19 test taken within 72 hours of arriving in Hawaii. The program essentially reopens Hawaii's tourism industry. And the idea of tourists from hotspots in the U.S. flying in for a cheap pandemic vacation has a lot of us feeling extremely nervous and pretty angry about a potential surge in cases. Medical experts and even neighbor island mayors have criticized the plan, calling for a more stringent system that would require people to take a second test after they arrive before being exempt from the quarantine. The Honolulu City Council also unanimously passed a resolution urging the state to implement a two-test system. But our overdependence on the tourism industry has left our top government officials adamant that we have to reopen. Lieutenant Governor Green said, we have to reboot our economy. We don't really have any choice. At the peak of the first shutdown, almost 40% of Hawaii's workforce was unemployed. And things are likely to get worse before they get better as furloughs turn into mass layoffs, unemployment benefits shrink, bills pile up, and people lose their health care. This is the thing about the pandemic, right? It's highlighting the cracks in the systems that capitalism has built, and it's exposed just how vulnerable we are and how ill-equipped our government is to take care of our people. Hawaii's relationship to the tourism industry was already exploitative in so many ways. From a cultural perspective, it perpetuates a commodified idea of Hawaii and of Hawaiian culture. From a gender perspective, it feeds off of exoticized and fetishized ideas about indigenous women and their bodies. Tourism has also always been an environmental justice issue because it transforms Aina according to the needs of wealthy settlers and tourists. For example, did you know that Sanford B. Dole, yeah, the same guy who helped to orchestrate the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, he went on to become the president of the provincial government of Hawaii, and he passed legislation deeming the wetlands of Waikiki a health hazard because they were home to abundant lo'ikalo and rice fields that he said were a breeding ground for mosquitoes. The provisional government began dredging and filling over these wetlands and displacing the Kanaka and working class Asian settlers who lived there, growing rice and kalo and running small subsistence farms. The provisional government did this with the express goal of creating new real estate to repopulate Waikiki with wealthy American settlers. They said they wanted to attract persons and residents of private fortune. And as the wetlands of Waikiki were transformed, Tourism was identified as an industry that would further assist in this process of replacing a population of brown people with white people. The Merchants Association of Honolulu in 1902 wrote, Properly directed, tourism cannot fail to result in bringing us ultimately an increased and permanent population of the most desirable character. So the tourism industry has always been about power, money, race, and settler colonialism. It's built on the backs of Kanaka and settlers of color to generate wealth for powerful white men. And honestly, not much has changed. Today, the tourism industry creates low-wage service jobs that funnel money to powerful multinational corporations. For example, did you know that it would take an average employee at the Marriott 395 years to earn what the CEO made in 2017 alone? 
Can you believe that? I honestly can't think of a more infuriating statistic. These kinds of crazy power dynamics really started to become more and more pronounced in the years before the pandemic. In 2019, we had reached 10 million tourists per year, and the Hawaii Tourism Authority's own survey found that 66% of residents felt that Hawaii was being run for tourists at the expense of local people. But despite all of that, the state was still funneling $108.5 million a year into the Hawaii Tourism Authority's budget to market Hawaii and attract more and more tourists. Just imagine what our economy could look like if we spent some of that money to develop other economies instead. If this industry has always been exploitative, you can bet that all of that is going to be exacerbated because of the pandemic. Whatever your feelings about the reopening, the hard truth of the matter is that the people who are going to be the canary in the coal mine, the people who are going to be the most vulnerable, are Hawaii's hotel and hospitality workers. These are our friends, our families. It's probably some of you listening right now. The multinational corporations that dominate the local tourism industry never have and never will put the safety and well-being of their workers and our local community first, unless we make them. So this week, we're talking with a very special guest. Lisa Grandinetti is a badass labor organizer with Unite Here Local 5, and she just happens to be my little sister. We talked about what's missing from the state's reopening plan, and I'll give you a spoiler alert now. It's the voices and expertise of the workers themselves. Okay, tell us a little about yourself. You know it all. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you the story I give people that don't know me. My parents were always politically informed, but never actually did too much about it. Until high school, I, I heard about, you know, politics, but um, it wasn't until I had my social studies teacher, Amy Peruso, who's now a representative, who you also had as your teacher, yeah. um, that I really started to understand who I was in Hawaii and in terms of learning about the labor movement, who I am as a settler, but also um, an indigenous woman, um, I started to understand why things were so horrible for local people in Hawaii. And that's when I started to really get sort of depressed about my future here, thinking that local people don't stay, um, or if they stay, then they're just going to struggle their whole lives. So I was watching my friends move away. Um, and so when I went to UH, I found ethnic studies and women's studies, which really helped me understand that better but that uh, that was also at the same time that I found Local 5 that was my senior year in high school through that same teacher Amy Peruso and my introduction to the union was kind of the same time that I was learning about struggles of the working class of women of color of indigenous people so that all really lined up um, to make me the radical person I am today but specifically with the union I, I saw working people actually winning for once because um, I was introduced to more land development with the development near Mililani, which is Coal Ridge, where I went to the city, like, city council hearing for the first time and just saw the the opponents of it just losing. And I, I testified about how we need good jobs, not 
any jobs. And um, I would, I'm the next generation. So many of the developers were saying would live. Of course, that that development went through and I felt defeated. And I was like, how do we, how does anyone do this political, like politics thing? Um, and Local 5 was winning. I didn't know what a union was, but my first int- introduction to Local 5 was just seeing Local 5 winning. And that's what the what I wanted. Over the last seven years, I've seen how that actually happens, which is organizing, organizing working class people to fight for our interests. Because really without organizing our collective power, you, we can't be heard in the political realm. Labor organizing is organizing the working class. So I think workers got to fit into that because we live in capitalism. So everything, you know, that we fight for is within that. And if you're not understanding that, you're going to fight for things that end up just contributing to it. Because like when you think of environmental justice, you think of, I don't know, straws, right? Like you only think of these, (laughs) or like beach cleanups. And when it comes, that's like what an everyday person would think. But when you really go down to the root of you know, what's causing climate change and what why we need environmental justice so badly is capitalism. And what do you need to fight capitalism? Workers. You can't do it without the workers. <laughs> um, because you they work, you know, they're always going to pit workers against the environment if you're not getting to the workers. That goes for things that are real complicated, like the windmills. Yeah. Or even like resort development. Oh my God. They'll always, like in Koalina, yeah. they're like, you know, they like transformed yeah. all the land there. But yeah. they said that it would yeah. provide and, jobs to the white and I mean, look. you have to yeah. think of it as even labor organizing, you have to think about it as organizing the working class. Because if you do only think about jobs, of course, you're going to, you know, develop land that we don't need developed. That's interesting. So you're talking, like you said... You can't just think about it as organizing for jobs. Yeah. You think about it as organizing the working class. Yeah, like yeah. Our ho- a like worker our lives as a so whole. So all these other our things too. Right? A worker is mm-hmm. is Hawaiian, is you know yeah. a woman. There's all these things are mm-hmm. gonna conflict if you're not thinking about it as we need power back as the working class to fight for ourselves which needs to be critical of all of those things or else workers are going to get screwed in the end if you're not considering those things. So when it comes to Aloha Aina, I mean, even I don't think workers are fighting for Aloha Aina when they're fighting to make the jobs that these hotel, you know, corporations develop these hotels for and then they start taking away. They say that they need to reopen for jobs and that's what they said to develop these hotels in the first place to then go back and take the jobs away it's like the I know was <laughs> destroyed for no reason I feel like it all connects and yeah, to yeah. get to a place where Aloha is the thing we function you know out of more collective well-being including the Aina it, it is a hard yeah. connection to make <laughs> if you're only focused on you know the short term and your needs right now which means you have to build power because like when you are lacking power you're always are kind of yeah. like at the whims of the the boss but the more power you build mm-hmm. the more long term you can think, and think the more not just what do i need right now but like 
what what do I want for myself and everybody else in our community in the future? I also wanted to ask you to give us a little bit of background about what Local 5 specifically is. Unite Here, so it's Unite Here Local 5, which is a international union of hospitality workers. So that's anywhere from hotels to casinos to airports. Uh, But in Hawaii, we have uh, about 11,000 members and a majority of those are hotel workers. But we also have a growing food service sector, which I'm the the organizer for uh, at the airport. It's HMS Host that works inside the airport, all the food service workers. And then the airline catering workers for United, which works outside of the airport, but they're connected to the airlines. And then we also have... Kaiser workers, about 2,000 that work in all of the Kaiser clinics across the islands. Can you give us an idea of what it means to organize? Because I think a lot of people hear that word thrown around a lot, community organizing, labor organizing, but don't really understand what that work actually looks like. Definitely, because I think organizing people think, when people think of that word, they, they're actually thinking of activism, which is making your voice heard. Um, and an activist is, you know, making a political statement, but and doing political actions. But organizing is really at the core, identifying, recruiting and training leaders using you know, relation, one-on-one relationships to as a building block mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, do, going to actions, you don't actually build relationships. Those are kind of sparks for people's political consciousness and um, can be, and, you know, that was, that was sort of, even for me, the access point, but like going to rallies, even, um, even after I was uh, introduced to Local 5, for different political issues, but the organizing is what happens after those big, before and after those big sort of rallies or, you know, events happen where you actually identify those people who not only care about the issue or are passionate about the issue, but have potential leadership and can move others around them around those issues. So no matter what mm-hmm. issue yeah, it is. like you can go to a... You can go to a rally and then come home and not really know how else you can help or what more you can do after that with one event, right? Yeah, and you there really isn't, like, it's not an accident that we don't know how to organize. It's not an accident that nobody knows what that word means, but it has always happened. That's how movements really do become long-lasting movements. But for, I mean, and for workers, unions have always been, First, the first unions were created because workers organized themselves. The leader, like workers themselves, stepped up in their leadership, decided to take, you know, responsibility of a group of their coworkers and say, I got these guys. What about you? And then to the other leaders and said, OK, I got these people and and pushed for you know, collective demands in in the workplace. So in the community, which is actually what I started with um, at Local 5 Now, I, I organize workers. That's what we could do in the community. But um, it, with workers, it's sort of more defined. You have a set group of people. They are employed by the same employer. Mm-hmm. They have different departments that you know who, you know, works together same shift who eats together on the same breaks and so those organizing is really through those relationships that you push people to um 
take ownership of their own situations and then see that connected to something more collective like you know we need better jobs so that we can feed our families and you know pay our rent so why is organizing important and why is it especially important during the pandemic i mean organizing is the only thing we have as working class people to have any control of our lives and so it is always important because we're screwed as a <laughs> as a young person, as a woman of color, as a indigenous person. Our futures are doomed. Our, you know, we're <laughs> we're just. Can I swear? No, it's okay. Um, okay, no. I swear. But yeah, I mean, that's already what I came to understand my future to be from when I was in high school, and I I wanted mm -hmm. a sense of control of my life. The only way that in you know oppressive systems of power that that people without power can have power is through the is through organizing is having the numbers to push the people in power to take over those positions of power you got to have everyone you got to you got to have a mass a critical mm -hmm. mass of people to actually you know turn things toward in our direction and and in our favor so in the pandemic it's just everything is all the injustices are highlighted and all of our lives are getting worse and i i mean it's the thing that we got to not only survive but try to build something for what comes after because we also know that you know one of the things one of the best things about being in a union is that we're still connected even though we're all at home and that's one of the mm -hmm. scariest parts is and being on zoom with you know the the leaders that continue to keep their coworkers informed, even though they're at home and try to get them to fight in ways that we didn't normally fight. Like that's, um, it helps keep me going. Um, and that's what we're going to need throughout this and after this to build a better world. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause everything around us has changed. So you need that like lucky thing, a union, kind of provides a constant just in the relationships you mm -hmm. have with each other as everything else is changing mm -hmm. around you. I guess that's a also leads into the next question of how the pandemic has impacted local five members. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mostly everyone is, is impacted because we're so dependent on tourism and travel, but our members are definitely like our sector is the most impacted or and will be for, you know, a long time. Um, not, I think 85% of just my organizing turf or like the, the members I organize and represent, um, is laid off, currently laid off and they are getting hosts, HMS host workers are actually definitely laid off in a couple of days, the, the same time that tourism is reopening, which is pretty messed mm -hmm. up. Um, but it, uh, the HMS host workers lost their medical in June and a uh, majority of the rest of our membership that are still at home that are part of our union medical, which the airport workers are not, um, they had a longer time. Like we used our funds to extend their medical, but we, we only have so much funds. So they will also start losing their medical. Some of them have and most of the rest of them will lose it by November. So 
it's pretty bad. Um, I hear every day people struggling to pay their rent. So um, all the other, yeah, it's, I mean, everybody's at home and their kids are at home. So they're, you know, figuring out ways to, you know, get food and, and pay rent, but also teach their kids at home and figure out how to manage all of that and also fight to get our jobs back. So it's, yeah. There's just every part of our lives and our members' lives has been impacted. What has the union been doing to protect members? Because I feel like so many people in, in Hawaii are facing those similar challenges, but maybe don't have the benefit of a real organizing union working together to kind of like confront some of those challenges. In the beginning, starting March, we became, uh, we, we all became unemployment experts. Um, all of our staff and are all <laughs> the only ones in yeah, Hawaii. <laughs> even better than the people at the call center for real. And yeah. and our members too. We have our like the, when I'm talking about organizing, I'm talking about the hundreds of leaders who lead the rest of the thousands of our members, you know, just on in their free time mm-hmm. who were on the phone like twenty four seven trying to get, you know, eleven thousand of us signed up for unemployment on top of the two hundred thousand um, you know, that aren't our members. So we we did that. We were sort of so we were certifying our members, members of our union, which means they didn't have to look for work, which was another, isn't just another hassle, which people think that they aren't checking, but they were checking. They're, they they still are somehow trying to mm. check on that, even though there are so few jobs. Mm. And then after that, you know, getting, getting workers access to, it, it became like social work a little more in terms of getting the basic needs met. Like we organized food distributions. We, um, for mm-hmm. specifically our members, we uh, came out with resources to to figure out how to get medical if it's not through your employer and host Zooms and um, make calls and, and even had, you know, direct people directly from the unemployment office and, and from the MedQuest sort of um, office um, and teach our members. I mean, yeah, all of the challenges are the same and, and it, it's still a challenge to get out to our, our members, but we, you know, people have had access to a lot more than, than non-union people um, have. And that's really sad and scary because everybody should have access to those things. Um, but on, on top of that, our members have specific protections from their union contracts, which includes, um, the, one of the biggest ones is recall rights, meaning, um, if you're permanently laid off, there's a period for it's, from different contracts, it's anywhere from a year to two years where the um, employer has to hire the existing workers back with everything reinstated, their seniority, um, their vacation and sick accrual rates, um, and uh, before they hire anybody from the outside. So all the the non-union places that have terminated their workers and there's been countless and there's more and more to come um they are basically fired just because we're in a pandemic and they have to reapply when they if they want their jobs back it's that's the that's one of the biggest protections um we have in terms of the the mass layoffs that are happening there are other things in our contract that protect the safety of workers so we have a the 
uh, employers are required to provide a safe working environment to our members and our members have a safety committee that that we're using in, in a whole new way in, in this pandemic to make sure that the employer is held accountable to all of these new risks that have come up from COVID. So that's the big thing. We've been meeting with a statewide safety committee of workers every week, about like 100 workers um, across four islands uh, from the hotels. Um, to come up with protocols, it's actually um, to hold the employer accountable on a you know day to day basis of what happens uh, during your shift, you know as tourists come back and as more workers have to go back to work, that's going to be one of the biggest protections we have. What's the general feeling on that? Is there one, or are are people feeling a lot of different conflicting things about? the idea of going back to work and tourism mm-hmm. reopening. Yes, the, it's really conflicted. People need their jobs and people want to work, but people yeah. don't want to risk the their own lives and the lives of their families to, you know, get a paycheck. So m- some workers, I would say maybe 50-50, like some workers, you know, will do just have to do you know what it takes to get back to work um figure out childcare and mm-hmm. um and you know make sure they're safe at work like they're and they're willing to do that now but some workers are you know just bombarded with with um distance learning with you know at home and and childcare for grandkids right. and you know and and or elderly care um of their mm-hmm. parents and so and even that it has a higher risk of bringing something home. So um, I, it's it's all mixed. It's a mixed bag, and it depends on every worker's situation. But it definitely like everybody's struggling. Um, it's just a matter of weighing out like the risks um, and what you're dealing with at yeah. home. So can you tell us more about that safety committee and what kinds of things are being discussed? And is the government? listening no do you think that they're okay i mean <laughs> pretty straight answer as i mean yes some very 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 few mm-hmm. so the majority of politicians are bought out by corporations right and from mm-hmm. you know the local level all the way up it's just amazing how much they don't listen to us and only have the voices of businesses in their ears so we um, have pushed from the these last the the entire what it's been seven months now. We have made calls. We've done emails. We've even when um, the ledge was open, we had a small group of workers go um, and lobby a little bit. They refused to put any worker protections um, in legislation when they were in session. We've pushed the governor to do an executive order. Now that that ship has sailed to do a um to to extend recall rights to all workers in hawaii he hasn't done that but in terms of the all workers in hawaii even if you're not yeah because part of the, the government union. can do that and yeah wow, that would be cool it, it wouldn't cost yeah. companies anything it's just a matter of protecting mm-hmm. workers but corporations want to you to use this as an opportunity to get rid of the workers yeah. that are strong and the, the workers that will fight for more. So, right. and they want to, they want yeah, workers wow. to be desperate and, and to come back to work 
and you know without any questions have to essentially yes. like beg for their job rather than to walk in there knowing that yeah and a right to, to be safe at work on top of that right which means more money yeah. um in terms of installing you know plexiglass you know in, in changing the engineering of places to make sure that, that people are distanced even workers right in the back of the house and in the front of the house like ea came to call a um resort because they're one of the places that have been open this whole time and they've really worked with the union rather than fighting the union to just reopen how they want and and disregard worker safety mm -hmm. so we've pushed and and but this the safety stuff is something that they've been really failing us on because the big ask was in the from the beginning was for the government to require companies to submit their safety protocols to the government and there's no overseeing yep. agency of the state to say to you know go to places and say this is this is not how it's supposed to be or this is not safe um, so workers have to do that themselves mm -hmm. but we train our workers luckily already to you know call things out in, in their workplace but with COVID it's it's like a whole new training that we have to do so that's what we've been doing um in this in these safety committee meetings um because we have been at home we've been training our members to know what's the riskiest behavior what you know what what rights do we have as workers how can we push back on the um, companies without being you know disciplined because they can do that as well they can say no you have to work right and do your job but the yeah the government's been horrible what do you think about the actual reopening strategy so far the reopening has been i mean everybody's frustrations have been spot on with every step of the reopening it's just a, a matter i feel like we're lacking the actual the right way in terms of the reopening we already know that the testing thing is one big thing and and the actual oversight from the government and and holding tourists accountable is a big thing that's missing just personally that's what i think in terms of workers workers have never been a part of the reopening strategy worker safety and workers lives and and working people's actual role in the reopening has just been totally ignored so it it's scary that it's happening this week it's so just makes me so mad yeah. like i mean like you said about host employees getting laid off the the yeah. day of the opening <laughs> it's like what are we opening for yep. if not for the well-being of and they workers. use workers to say oh look we need jobs but any conversation you see there's no workers at the table host workers have been the, uh, the, they work for the state basically they're subcontracted at the airport and the state hasn't done anything mm. to hold the like they're called concessionaires at the airport accountable to you know extending health care mm -hmm. to keeping their their jobs you know in place as this reopens it's just it's just lip service and there's nothing on the actual in the actual plan that protects workers in any way can you talk a little bit about the emotional impact of all of this because yeah. I feel like another important thing is I know from being your sister that organizing is not just like political strategy the way yeah. you might think of it it's like 
very intimate and emotional work. So especially in a pandemic, it must be really traumatic. What's it been like for you and for the other organizers and workers that have been going through this with? I mean, all of us are fucking depressed. (laughs) Sorry, I'm supposed to swear. You can bring it out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it really is like... I'm just crying thinking about it. Like, what's going to happen this week? What kind of calls am I going to get next week? And people are scared. And we have way more rights than non-union workers. And and it's still so just draining and dooming and sad. Like, at first it was the pandemic itself and getting temporarily laid off than it was you know losing insurance and it's a permanent layoff now people are running out of unemployment for all the workers I mean I take calls and I make calls every day nothing that we talk about is good except having each other it's the only thing that's keeping me going really if I wasn't organizing workers I think I would just feel like we are doomed and we got nothing to look forward to but I love our members our members and and I love and workers if you expand that to everybody like we have each other and and we're not connected we don't feel it when we have Mm -hmm. the union which is us sometimes I hate getting calls and hearing the horrible stories because I wish I could do more but I also love talking with our members and getting to know their stories and figuring out ways we can fight because we care about each other and because all the people we care about that are going through the same things. So it's a complicated role to play, especially right now in the pandemic. But I think always Mm -hmm. it's also just it's the most fulfilling thing. I'm pretty sure if you ask any organizer, they'd say the same thing because we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't feel that. But it's also like I'm going to therapy every week. I wouldn't I wouldn't, you know, be surviving I wouldn't be able to function the way I am if I didn't have a support network of friends and family and and other organizers and our members my next question is because I know you so I know like we always complain about how dependent Hawaii is on tourism it'll be interesting for people listening to this podcast to hear about how an organizer in the hotel workers union can carry these critiques of our dependence on tourism. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you envision for a different relationship to tourism, because right now in the pandemic, so many of us have really seen that our economy Mm -hmm. makes us vulnerable, makes us vulnerable economically, environmentally, culturally. And then we have this like really weird, uncomfortable, like conflicting experience where we encounter so many negative things about the pandemic. But like we also have these little moments where we feel like we can see Hawaii in a way that Mm -hmm. we've never had a chance to before. So some people are talking about like, yeah, let's get rid of tourism. Let's make the transition. But the fact of the matter is we're still dependent on it for our livelihoods until we Mm -hmm. can build other alternatives. So what do you envision for what a post-pandemic Hawaii could look like if all workers organized and we achieved our wildest dreams? Wildest dreams. Okay, wildest dreams, there would be no tourists. But of course, (laughs) I mean, I think honestly, all local people and all people that value Hawaii, what we feel like it should be, even people who don't understand sovereignty or don't have as much aloha aina awareness, I think 
local people still just would rather have Hawaii not have tourists. And of course, there's the question of, you know, well, a bunch of us are settlers. So what we want it for ourselves. There's it's it's all complicated. But I mean, I still can if we want to organize, it can be a shared value to organize around, which is we do people who value Hawaii, even who are settlers, know that it shouldn't be trashed and desecrated by tourists, which tourism is ultimately just going to do the resources and and everything. But but yeah, we need jobs. We need to feed ourselves. We need to be housed and we need to have a future for ourselves and young people and our children. So while the streams, we would grow on food and blah, blah, blah. It's been said before. I think the, the, I mean, we all know what it's like, but that's the whole world too, right? You can't just push it out somewhere else, go somewhere else. Yeah, it's true. Maybe we should rethink why you got to go on your vacation. Maybe you should, we should, you should organize at work and make life better. Yeah. And then, you know, be able to rest. <laughs> yeah, it's just so much. You can go deep into it. But I think a realistic vision would be, yeah, people are going to come here because of decades of whole industry and we can handle some and it's okay as long as we actually get the maximum number of jobs out of it. We could have so much less tourists and have Mm -hmm. so much more jobs if they weren't run by corporations. So maybe co-ops, I mean, definitely co-ops and to run everything, but especially tourism, because when they're when it's run by people who are not here and who just want to fake that they're providing jobs, these good jobs, just so that they can use Hawaii, it's always going to be exploitative and not good for workers too. But I think on top of that, workers, no matter what industry there is, workers have to be unionized and, and fighting and organizing because there are unions that don't organize because of a history of getting, you know, salted and mm-hmm. by business people and and made into more like businesses and third parties who, you know, advocate for workers, which do, just doesn't work. But all workers have to be organized no matter what industry. And I think that's true because, I mean, we we talk about like being able to feed ourselves and going um, like moving our industries towards agriculture. Yeah, but we we so already well, know we gotta go to that history of agriculture yeah. being incredibly yeah, it exploited unless, yeah. unless yeah. workers are organized. And our members even are are growing food. In, in their backyards. So many workers, you know, have just been yeah. at home. So it's it's more of a hobby, but they're producing food for each other, you know, because when you harvest, there's too much for your, you and your mm-hmm. family. So I know that, that, I mean, I see that happening mm-hmm. and it's really amazing. And I think if we can turn that into an industry owned by workers, that could be one part of the economy it just no matter what there is it just has to be like clean energy and any good thing you can think of it can be bad if there if workers aren't in control so no matter right. what working people and people yeah. who aren't workers right where nobody's actually, people aren't actually working right now or plenty of people aren't working just you know mm-hmm. working class people have to have control of whatever happens in Hawaii so what can somebody listening to this podcast who isn't part of the union take away from this conversation how can this apply to your life if you mm. aren't a unionized worker no matter who you are you're in you know as we're just I keep wanting to say fucked. No matter who you are right now, <laughs> your life isn't that great. <laughs> it's really scary. We don't know what's to come. And most of it just seems bad. But as 
workers in general, the only power that we do have is, like I was saying, the emotional part of it too. The only solid thing that we have is each other. So, and I think that's the real core of being part of a union. So, I mean, we we build relationships mm-hmm. with our coworkers no matter what, especially when situations are bad. So using that energy and and figuring out how we can build some collective power no matter where you're at and and just strengthening mm-hmm. our relationships with each other and stepping up to situations where we're asked to show some leadership. Those are all things we need to do more of and will need as we unionize more workers, you know, as we try to approach this scary future. What else have we got to lose, <laughs> right? Like non-union workers. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. I feel the obvious downside is going to be we're going to, yeah, we're going to be begging for our jobs back, uh, non-union workers and and workers in general. That's what it's going to mm-hmm. feel like. And that's the fear right now but you can also turn that into well fuck it I don't know how else to say that we might as well (laughs) fight for more because we're screwed no matter what yeah that's true I mean that's why you're starting to hear all these demands for things that you people never talked about before like we're going to be talking about housing later in the season but people calling for a rent strike we're already so deep in the hole we might as well ask for things that didn't seem possible before yeah because none of this seems possible before like when when you have a little bit you you want to keep it so you'll like just put your head down to try to keep it but we like lost everything that way right we are we no no matter how hard you try to do it that way you're still it feels like we're still going backwards so you might as well try to push forward and on my good days I do think that that's going to happen on my bad days. I think the opposite will happen. But I think (laughs) everybody feels that way. And if we talk, continue to talk to each other and trust, build trust with each other as workers, as, you know, family, as friends, the real foundation we need to actually build a more mass movement and no matter like non-union workers, union workers, people who aren't working, anybody can do that now. Well, before we go, is there anything you want to tell people about how they can support Local 5 or get involved? Yes, we have a whole bunch of fights we're in right now with all the employers. Um, So you can check out our Facebook, our Instagram, our website. I think we have a Twitter, too, um, to see our actions um, because we'll be in Waikiki at the airport um, at Kaiser Clinics to make sure that our jobs come back to us um, and in the community for all of us, right, in Hawaii. So you can join us at our sign-waving actions. We do caravans. Uh, We don't have anything set um, right now, but there will be definitely many more to come. And Local 5 actions are fun. Yeah. We'll chat. (laughs) We sing. (laughs) We dance. Eat. We eat. (laughs) Yes. Okay, sweet. Well, we're Paul. That was weird hearing you talk all professional. <laughs> I never knew you sound so smart. Oh, I'm so fancy. <laughs> we did it. Cool. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, my sister. <laughs> we are the Grandinetti Girls. Uh, Grandinetti Girls. <laughs> And catch us at the actions all the time. Uh, All right, we're out. Keep grabbing any quarrels out. (laughs) Bye. Okay, bye.
Oh my gosh, it's so hard to decide, right? Who's the cooler Grandinetti sister? <laughs> Just kidding, my sister is the best. And you know, I think that conversation was super important for our podcast because we got to touch on some really crucial points about how empowering the working class is intrinsically an environmental justice issue since capitalism is built on the dual exploitation of the land, but also of our labor. And for me, we really have to center this when we talk about a post-pandemic economy, yeah? Like the only way we're ever gonna even begin to start building a more just economy is by listening to the working class because even though we're dependent on these exploitative industries, we're also the ones that are hurt by them and that know them the most intimately. Whether it's tourism or agriculture or whatever, all industries are made on the backs of full living whole people and we need to build power amongst ourselves to make sure that those industries are accountable to us so that we can really begin demanding more and that's why i'm super grateful to lisa and to all of the workers who are out there organizing and fighting for a better safer hawaii for all of us stay safe out there everyone and stay rooted <laughs>